Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. All right, Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. Holding the tradition of the elders, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He then answered them, he, he answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me everyone and understand there's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him but the things which come out of him those are the things that defile a man if anyone has ears to hear let him hear when he had entered a house away from the crowd his disciples asked him concerning the parable so he said to them are you thus without understanding also do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man that defiles a man? For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word here for us. Jesus, we thank you for the light of your word. How powerfully it illuminates the darkness and brings us into clarity and further into your kingdom. And that's why we're here this morning, God. We're here to come further into you, further into who you are and what you have for us. So we just say this, Holy Spirit, would you bring us? Would you call us? Would you draw us? Would you lead us closer to your heart as you teach us yours? We ask that you would speak to us today as we study your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. All right. Well, um, thanks, David. Thanks. For, let's give it up for David again. I got to just honor him for doing that, kicking us off. Excited for everyone to be a part of this in the weeks to come. Um, listen, as I mentioned, the title of our series in the Gospel of Mark is The Way, Learning from the Life of Jesus. That's really what the Gospel of Mark focuses on. We've talked about this every week. Mark is uniquely about the life and actions of Jesus of Nazareth. What did he live like? What was he like? What was the way in which he did all the different things he did? Um, and we want to grow in our understanding of that because we... Well, we're followers of Jesus, and central to being a follower of Jesus is understanding who he is, and not assuming who he is, and assuming his way, but really knowing it in truth. And also, we want to go the way of Jesus. That's our desire, is not to go our own way, even though that's our tendency, but we've said the way of Jesus is the best way, and we want to find and go that way uh, and show that way to the world around us. So that's what we're exploring, and every week we're looking at a different facet 
an aspect of the way of Jesus. And here in Mark 7, we got a lot of red letters. So we, got, we finally read a section here where there's a decent amount of teaching uh, from Jesus. Uh, but we're going to couch it in the context of this kind of focus, this uh, facet of Jesus' way. All right. So if you'd like to take notes, we're going to look today in this passage, what we just saw was the way Jesus confronted. The way Jesus confronted. Um, that's really what we have here in this passage. We're going to look in a second at, at how we see Jesus confronting some important heart issues. But the context of this confrontation is helpful for us to see something that's kind of interesting, that Jesus' confrontation is a counter-confrontation. Jesus confronts those who are confronting him. That's what we have here. This has kind of been the theme of Mark, is you have the Pharisees, a.k.a. the confronters, the religious confronters, who have it as a mission in life to fix whatever they see to be wrong in their own religious eyes. And uh, in their eyes, Jesus is wrong. He's not helping their own political power and religious platform. He's threatening them in their position because he actually represents God. And they don't want their platform to topple down. They want the attention and the praise of the masses. They don't like how all the multitudes are coming to Jesus. And so they are going to confront Jesus once again. This has kind of been a theme of theirs. We read it there in verse 1, that the Pharisees and some of the scribes, notice this, they came together to him having come from Jerusalem. So they are on a, a long-distance trip as this like delegation that's been tasked with investigating Jesus for the purpose of fault-finding in order to discredit him. Okay? They're fault finders. That's what they're after here. Um, their, their mission here is not to go, hey, I wonder if this really is God, and I wonder if he really is the Messiah. Let's go see. No, they've already made up their minds, even though the truth is staring them in the face, right? They've already made up their minds that their mission is to squash Jesus, and their tactic in doing this is to try to find some way that they can fault him. They're fault finders. Nobody likes a fault finder, right? A person who's looking for what's off or looking for something they can twist to point out and say, oh, look at this. Look what you've done. Look what you've said. The, the illustration that comes to mind is I think of this, uh, I, I think of last night being at uh, the Inter-Miami soccer game. I went to with uh, my brother-in-law and we took Judah and his friend. Uh, we got to go down to the Miami soccer game, which is in Flo uh, Fort Lauderdale. It's in Fort Lauderdale. They uh, took over the whole Lockhart Stadium area. It's a beautiful stadium there. Uh, David Beckham's doing a, a fine job there, chap. Um, sorry. And uh, they, they built this incredible organization there. And so we got to go to the, the game. And Judah, it was his first professional sporting event that he had ever been to, other than watching me play basketball in the driveway. Um, and, and he's come to watch us play spike ball a couple times. There's that too. But this, at his first sporting event, he was just taking it all in. Now, uh, if you remember this, as a kid going to a public sporting event, what is like the greatest desire and goal you have at that event? Does anybody know? To get on that jumbotron, baby. We don't have audio, so I can't play the video. It's on my Instagram. But this is Judah there at the bottom with his friend Luke, and they are at the height of achievement of an eight-year-old. Like, there is no, this is peaking, okay, for an eight-year-old. Uh, they made it on the Jumbotron. They were just going, they were doing it for like 20 minutes. Like, they knew where the camera guy was. They were trying to get his attention, and there was this incredible Spanish song blasting, and Judah's just doing this, like, classic uh, Kevin McAllister dance kind of a thing. Uh, it's, it was awesome. Um, and, and, you know, I think of this because what you have there, this is kind of the positive light of this, but you have this videographer and his job is to find the person who's partying the most to kind of hype up the crowd to have more energy. And it features them. They're, they're looking for someone that they can feature there on the Jumbotron. Well, in a negative kind of, uh, kind of converse sort of idea, the Pharisees are like spiritual cameramen. And what they're trying to do is, is almost like put Jesus on blast before the masses. They're trying to find some kind of fault in him that they can exploit or they can twist to, again, discredit him and his ministry. 
And so here's what it tells us. They come from Jerusalem. They're trying to get Jesus on the spiritual jumbotron with whatever fault he may have. And it says this. This is what they found. They saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, and by the way, defiled uh, is kind of to be said like that, with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, and they, of course, as fault finders, they found fault. Now, I just want to say, like a personal statement here, I am for washing your hands before you eat, okay? And, and in, in some sense, it's like disciples, that's gross. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, why was that the thing? Like, they don't wash their hands before they pig out, okay? Uh, but this is an interesting uh, fault to find. They see that the disciples are eating bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands. It goes on to explain a little bit more about why this is an issue. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, according to their traditions, they do not eat unless they wash their hands. This is not like... This is not about hygiene here, okay? It says in a special way. The idea there is special is like, it's not like what kind of soap are they using or like how, you know, like there's like the proper way for how long you're supposed to, to lather and then rinse. It's none of that. It's not like a hygiene special. It's a ceremonial special. It's a traditional ritualistic way to purify what may be unclean on your hands, especially if you've been in the marketplace, especially if you've been around some Gentiles. You need to wash your hands in this special way. This was the tradition holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, it was in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, uh, uh, where, where the priests are actually commanded and called to wash their hands before leading the people in worship. It's actually a great picture of leadership, isn't it? If you're going to lead worship, if you're going to lead God's people, you, you want to you, you come from a posture of, of cleanliness. You don't want to use ministry as a platform for something fleshly or sinful, uh, if we're going to do Christian things, we want Christian leaders to be men of integrity. You know what I'm saying? We want them to be men of, of clean hands and pure hearts. And, and so it, for the, the priest, there was this picture of this. Before you make the sacrifice, there was a Levitical ritual through which a priest would, would go through a ceremonial washing to be clean to make that sacrifice. What had happened is that principle and that command had become traditionalized, and you had the elders of the day who, who would do this to all sorts of the laws of God. They would create these stipulations and these codes and these extra rules to help, you know, if someone really wanted to be a law keeper, here's a hundred ways you could keep this command. And it was all about that. How do we help, you know, the law keepers, keepers be really good rule keepers? How do we help them be good rule keepers? That was the idea. And what had come out of that is these traditions, these traditions that, by the way, weren't commanded by God for God's people that get held over people's heads. And anybody who's not, don't we still do this today, right? Like, you're not fitting into my traditional box, even though God never commands in Scripture that you should do these things. It's what I've always done, and it's what tradition tells me. And so if you're not fitting in my box, I'm going to judge you on behalf of God, which is horrible. It's horrible to do that. Jesus says, if we're going to judge, we should use righteous judgment. But that's not what these Pharisees are doing. They're confronting Jesus because their emphasis here is on this ceremonial washing. And it, and it, it didn't end with ceremonial hand washing. Like these guys were obsessed. Here, here's what religion does. Religion is obsessed with external ways to clean yourself up. Religion, which is God minus Jesus. It's, it's the Christian thing minus Jesus and grace and the work on the cross, all it is is a bunch of external ways, behavioral ways for you to clean yourself up. And so it didn't end with hands. Um, it, it tells us in verse 4 that when they come from the marketplace, especially they've been brushing with some Gentiles who are unclean, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold. They wash everything. They wash cups, pitchers, copper vessels, they even watch their couches, you know? you got to watch your couch every now and then, especially if you have a dog, right? Now, what's going on here, okay? This is just some more extremity of this religion. Man's attempt to clean themselves up, and this is where it leads. It leads to insanity. Okay, that sort of religion leads to bondage to rules. It, leads to a, it doesn't lead to relationship with God. It doesn't lead to love for God and love for people. It leads to either pride or shame, because you kept the rules or you didn't. And you're not good enough or you're better than everyone else, right? And, and so they had so many stipulations here. They would, they would not just wash their hands, but maybe their cups became unclean or their pitchers, their copper vessels. The word couch is there. It's like a dining chair. So I don't know if, I, I think today it's not as common to have a dining couch. 
unless you're like a bachelor and you eat your dinner on the couch watching ESPN, like that's, okay, that's, that's your dining, like my dining couch here, it's biblical. Um, but they were obsessed with external ways to make themselves clean. And when you are bound by this religious spirit, listen, you seek to bind others. When you are bound by this religious spirit, you can't help but seek to bind others. And that's what they try to do. And so what do they do? They confront Jesus. We found a fault. What's wrong with Jesus? Is he sinning? No, but he's not doing the traditional thing that everybody does. He's not, he's not being good at religion. And so they come to Jesus, and they ask him, Jesus, why do your disciples... So here's their indictment against Jesus is what his disciples are doing. Why don't they walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? All right, so, so this is the context of Jesus' confrontation. This is where things start. Now, as Jesus responds to this confrontation, what you have here is a contrast. The context gives a contrast. You could say that this chapter here is a contrast between two confrontations. Uh, it's a contrast in two ways. It's a contrast in, oops, wrong slide, let's go here. Yeah, it's a contrast in purpose and emphasis. That's what's contrasted here. You have, you, have two, you have two confrontations. The confrontation of the Pharisees of Jesus, and then what follows, what we'll read here, is the confrontation that's like a counter-confrontation where Jesus then confronts the Pharisees right back. Which is interesting because typically what Jesus does is he responds with like questions. He just responds with a question with a question. But Jesus, like, he's, he's like in it for blood this time. He goes right for the jugular. He's like, I got a confrontation with you. And in that, these two confrontations, again, there's a contrast. First, a contrast in purpose. Um, the Pharisees are confronting with one unique purpose, and that is to, listen, discredit Jesus and condemn him and his followers. This is what religion does. Religion doesn't confront the way Jesus does, which is with truth and love. Jesus, by the way, Jesus does confront. We know this, right? We can't call every confrontation religious. Oh, you're confronting me because you're just a judgmental Christian. No, 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 Jesus will confront you and me. He has. He confronts me regularly with the reality of my sin before him. And the reality of our, really, the way that you, you see this is, one of the best places to see this is um, the book of Revelation. Just read those, about those seven churches that Jesus is lovingly confronting. And what you'll see, is, again, is a contrast between the way religious, religion confronts, the purpose of it is to discredit and condemn, and the purpose for why Jesus would confront you and I. He confronts us not to discredit and condemn us. As hard as Jesus' confrontations may be, they are some of, they should be some of the most desired things in our lives because they're really opportunities for us to change our way and to step into something better that we've been missing out on. So when Jesus confronts, it's not to discredit and to condemn, but it's instead, listen, it's to convict and to deliver. And so we're going to see the contrast there. Jesus is going to confront them right back, but with a completely different purpose, not to condemn them, but to deliver them, to convict them, and to call them out of their sin. Now, the other contrast you see between these two confrontations, the confrontation of the Pharisees and that of Jesus, is a contrast of emphasis. And this may be the biggest idea we see in this passage. If, if we can read into the story here a little bit, what we can see is the, the ministry of the Pharisees, which we can call religion, is emphasizing one thing, and then we see Jesus in his confrontation emphasizing something completely different. As Jesus confronts back, here's the contrast we see. We see that religion tends to focus heavily on the hands, on what you need to do, on the right rules you need to keep, on the right ways you need to live. Here's what you need. It's all about cleansing the exterior, right? It's all about the, the, the checklist of rules so that you can curry God's favor and be on his good side. If you do these things, then God will reward you. If you fail to do these things and not look like me, then you won't be blessed, right? That's the idea. The emphasis is on, is on your hands and what you do. There's no emphasis on who you are and your motive for why you're doing what you do, which is like most of what God calls out in Scripture. We know this, right? That we, As Christians, we're those that know we, don't, we shouldn't just repent for doing bad things. 
Sometimes we need to repent for doing good things for the wrong reason. And when we just make it about what you do, we miss what Jesus emphasizes. What a contrast. They're emphasizing washed hands, and Jesus is focusing on the heart. You might have remembered um, a series we did earlier this year called The Rules of Formation. You guys remember that series? We looked at four rules in Scripture of spiritual formation. And the first rule that we looked at in this series we called the heart rule. The heart rule. Uh, which is a rule that, that talks about the importance of being formed from the, the, the center point of our lives, which is our heart. And, and uh, this is what Jesus is getting at here, what, what God most cares about. We know this, even in VBS, we're taught growing up in church, even though we tend to forget this, not to look at the outward appearance, not to look at how religious they look or how much better. We know that God doesn't see the way man sees, right? Man looks at the outward appearance. What is God concerned with? The heart. Like this, is, this is like intro to Bible 101. God cares about human hearts before anything else. And Jesus is echoing this. Now, it's important, I think, to define some things here because Jesus is going to use the word heart over and over again. And so to clarify what he means by that, we, we want to pull from this great book. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And you could read it for free this summer if you sign up now. Um, in the book Gentle and Lowly, uh, the book is all about the heart of Christ. It's what the book's about, Gentle and Lowly. What, what is Jesus' heart towards you and me, towards sinners and sufferers? And he takes some time to define what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of the heart. And Dane Ortland says this. I believe it's in chapter 1. He says, when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether Old Testament or New, Jesus here, Jesus is not, or the Bible is not speaking of our emotional life only, you know, like, hearts, I love you, but of the central animating center of all that we do, the central headquarters of your being. Just like your, your physical heart is the center of your physical life, your spiritual heart, your heart in Scripture is an idea of the core and the center of who you are. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning and what we daydream about as we drift off to sleep. It is our motivation headquarters. The heart, in biblical terms, I love this, is not part of who we are, but the very center of who we are. Okay? Don't think of your heart as a category of your life. Think about it as the center of your life. And this is what Jesus is most concerned with, the center of our lives. Proverbs says it the same way, just in Two poetic verses. As in water, face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. Okay? So the truth of who you are is not just found in your hands and your habits. It's found in your heart and what your heart is after. Some great resources that dig into this. But this is what Jesus is getting at. And so Jesus is confronted. And then Jesus now is going to counter-confront. Normally, again, he replies with questions. But he's going to go right for the jugular here in love for the purpose of convicting and delivering them, Jesus is going to give, and you can write these down, Jesus is going to confront three critical and concerning conditions of the heart. That's what he does. That's what we read. As he counter-confronts the Pharisees, he confronts three critical and concerning conditions of the heart. They come to Jesus and say, why aren't your disciples emphasizing the hands, washing the ceremonial traditional way? And the first thing Jesus responds with is a criticism and a confrontation over what we'll call, first, a distant heart. Write that down. A distant heart. That's his first order of business. He's going to confront the confronter. And he's going to speak to the reality of their distant hearts, the real issue here. What do we mean by distant heart? Well, Jesus says it this way. He answers and says to them, as they are fault-finding in Jesus, he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? And I wonder if at that moment they're like, of course he did. Isaiah spoke all about me. What did he have to say about me? I'm in the Bible, right? Yeah, he spoke about you. He goes, hypocrites. As it is written, as Isaiah spoke about you, he wrote saying, this people honors me with their lips and their religion, and their rule-keeping, and their hand-washing, and their couch-washing. But their heart is far from me. You have a religiously busy life, but you have a spiritually distant heart. A religiously busy life, but a spiritually distant heart. Paul will say that it's the kind of religion that has a form of godliness but a lack of power. 
which comes from a relationship with God. Jesus will rebuke the Pharisees and say, you, you wash the outside of the cup. That's your emphasis in life, is everything external, but you neglect your heart. He uses the word hypocrite. Isn't that interesting? That's what he says to these religious people. Uh, the word hypocrite in Greek is a theatrical term. We know this, right? The word he uses is a word that he borrows from theater, and it literally means to be an actor, to play a part, to put on a mask, and to project someone on the outside that you're not on the inside. That's what acting is, right? That's what actors do for a living. They take on a role. They say all the right things. They do things all in the right way. And the director is often shame or pride, <laughs> leading them to make these decisions. And this is what Jesus says about the Pharisees. This is what he confronts. And can I say that Jesus in love will confront this in us as well. And the longer you spend time in church, here's what the harder it is to combat this. Because the more like natural and subconscious the role becomes, right? You, like when, when someone's a brand new Christian and they don't know all the right things to say. And you know, this is how you, oh, this is how you, in this, here's the, the modern Pharisee, right? In the Western Christian American church context, this is how you appear spiritual, this is how you look godly. You say these things and you do, you do these things. But if you haven't learned those things, I love like a brand new follower of Jesus. They're just so raw and honest. It's usually not the new Christian that's playing the part. It's the 20-year-old Christian that's been struggling with the same sin for 20 years. And in their mind, they shouldn't anymore, right? So this is not acceptable for someone walking with Jesus this long. And so I, I'm not going to go the route of humility and repentance because that would require me to be honest with what's in my heart. Instead, I'll just get comfortable with a distant heart and I'll just keep playing this role. An inauthentic life, which is like, what a, what a sad thing to live. The only thing worse than the only thing worse than being saved by the blood of Jesus and remaining in your sin is being saved by the blood of Jesus and hiding your sin and living a double fake inauthentic life. Especially because what the gospel of Jesus says is this. You're approved by God. Come as you are. Come be the mess you are, right? <laughs> take off the mask. Take off Saul's armor. Stop trying to project something that nobody's looking to project. And that's, what, that's the lie the enemy sows in the church. Like, other people want you to have this image. No, they don't. You know what Christians want from other Christians? Weakness. Like, oh, you're weak. Okay, I can be weak now, too. Oh, you're a mess too? Let's be real about what's going on there. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's calling out and confronting this dangerous religion that's bad for the church and bad for the watching world. Religiously active but spiritually distant. You know, and, and in this confrontation, I want you to see the cry. When God is saying this to his people, he's not saying this in anger like, you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me, yo. Like, He's not saying it from a place of, I imagine that of like a father that just wants relationship with his kids. And he's like, okay, I, you sing great. I love the songs. And like you show up to church, like, like it's good. Like, and I remember your labor of love. But like the thing that I'm after from, from cover to cover, the thing that God is most after in your life is not your behavior, it's your heart. It's what he wants. It's what he died to save. You see that with the, with the rich young ruler, right? Who comes to Jesus, he's like, what are the behaviors I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus gives him the list, and the guy goes, I've done it all. And Jesus goes, yeah, you sure have. You're a good little religious boy who has a heart that's tied to money on the inside. And Jesus doesn't lead him, and here's how you get saved, pray this prayer. No, Jesus goes after his heart. This is what God is after in our lives as well. He's calling us out of a posture, listen, of a distant heart, a heart that is far from God. Like Maybe you just take a moment here, just reflect on one thing. Jesus saved you for your heart to be near to him. He wants nearness from you. That's what he saved you for. And listen, he has made the way for you to approach him. See, sin separated us, but Jesus reconciled us. So, so we can't, like, sometimes what we do is the reason why we're distant from God is because, oh, my sin has distant... What about the cross? What about that whole thing? You're as near to him as you seek. You're as near to him as you want to be. He, he's as near to you as you could ever dream and hope. 
but our hearts can wander away. And when we talk about being near to God in heart, what we're talking about is relationship with him. And nearness of heart means you're loved. You're just under the waterfall of his love, and you're loving as a response to him and those around you. It's not religion, it's relationship. It's beautiful. If there's one thing I know about my heart, though, it's that I have a tendency to wander. Anybody else? Like, I don't, I don't know what it is. My heart will never stay in the right place. It's probably why the Bible says, like, guard your heart. Keep it. Why? Because it's always chasing after other things, especially religion. Especially the rule-keeping thing. Especially, the, like, just dead old religion. So what an invitation. A confrontation first to evaluate. And maybe just today, it's like, ask yourself this question. Have I wandered from God? Is, is my heart distant? Um, in Isaiah, the language is that you've removed your heart from me. That's interesting. What, if anything, has removed my heart from God? What right now in your life is between your heart and God? How do you need to take that thing and see it obliterated by the cross and see a free ramp that brings you right to the throne of God, that brings you right to the arms of God? It's confronting that. And then it's responding. I, I love this invitation for the church in Hebrews. Hebrews is all about what Jesus has done to take us who were far off and to bring us near through the blood of the cross. And the, the big crescendo in chapter 10 is, you know, one of those big therefores. It says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, that's that place of relationship with God, by a new and living way. Okay? Not that old, dead way of religion, but a new way through the cross, which he consecrated for us through his veil, that is his flesh that was torn for us to access the presence of God. And we have a high priest over the house of God. He's cleansed his hands for you. <laughs> He's made you clean. I love this. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see that invite? This is the Christian life, just living in this relationship that's been given to us by God through Jesus. Now, what is the confidence we have? Come on, you know this verse. Draw near to God. I love this. And he will draw near to you. As far as your heart has, has, has wandered from God, as you draw near to him, what you're, going to be found, what you're going to find is not a God that's waiting over there for you to show back up to where you were. You'll find the father of the prodigal who's racing towards you. To walk with you. Notice the call to repentance. Cleanse your hands. You see the language? It's not physical. It's spiritual. It's repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Sometimes your heart needs to repent of those things that have drawn you away from the Lord. And you say, God, forgive me. Cleanse me of my sin. And I want to come back to you. First thing Jesus confronts is what we call, again, a distant heart. And he confronts us to invite him closer. Let's um, look at this next one. A deceived heart. A deceived heart. Don't let your heart be deceived. I got the time in mind. Don't worry. I got this. All right? He's got this. Okay? The next thing Jesus calls out in the Pharisees is not just a distant heart. It's filled with religious activity, but is filled with spiritual distance and, and apathy. But then he speaks to another critical and concerning heart condition that we'll call a deceived heart. The Pharisees are, are living their own religious idea, their own, what they think is, a, is the right spiritual way to go, and they're doing so because they've been deceived. Jesus says, in vain they are worshiping God. And here's what they're doing. They're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's the mistake that they've made. They're so deceived that in the name of God, they are violating Scripture through their tradition. Um, he tells them this, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. So this is what Jesus is calling out with the Pharisees. Like This is, this is how far they have, in the name of, of seeking God, this is how far they've wandered from God through religion. And I'll give you kind of this graph to kind of explain uh, what Jesus says um, they're doing. The conversation here is, is regarding tradition and scripture. Now, outright, tradition in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not something to be rejected. Tradition, um, if added to the authority of scripture, added to it, not in like an adding in, a, in, in terms of giving it, it an authority, but scripture 
plus traditions that help us uphold the scripture. Does that make sense? Like, you know, it's a tradition that we gather here every Sunday at 10 a.m. The Bible doesn't say gather every Sunday at 10 a.m. at a middle school. It certainly doesn't say that, right? But we know the Bible says scripture teaches not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. This is the tradition of the church throughout the scriptures, that God's people regularly need to recenter their lives together, not just individually, but as a community around Jesus. And so tradition is good, you know? Like, imagine if this wasn't a tradition. It was just something we did, like, when we felt like it. It's like, hey, next week, I don't know, maybe we'll meet at 10, maybe we'll meet at 2 o'clock. I'm not sure. We'll see. You know, we have traditions that are helpful to lead us in, in the faith. You know, um, like, aren't you glad we have a tradition of having coffee out there every morning before service? Isn't that a great tradition? Should we keep that tradition? Okay, yeah, I think so. It's a good one. It helps us be Christians, actually, on Sunday morning. It's a great tradition. Um, I would even argue maybe it's probably biblical, you know? But there's a danger, danger though, when tradition, here's, here's, this is like a decreasing downward spiral of of ending up in a deceived state, tradition is equal to scripture. That's where it gets dangerous, right? That's what the Pharisees are doing. They've taken traditions and they've made them on equal ground with the authority of the Bible. So the example of this would be like, I'm not going to that church. Why? They don't have coffee. I'm not going to that church. They don't have coffee. Not a true church, okay? Obviously, that's an extreme sarcastic example, but there's a lot of sincere examples of this in the church, where we take tradition as, as it approaches different topics of our culture and we make them on equal ground with scripture. We start to elevate tradition to that level. And, and where this ends up leading us, this is where, where Satan loves to bring this, is to a place where we elevate tradition over scripture. Over scripture. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. That's what they've been deceived into doing. They have elevated tradition at the expense of scripture. And he gives an example of how they've done this. All right, So he's going to call them out. This is confrontation at its finest. Jesus is confronting their deceived hearts. How in the name of God, they are violating scripture. Here's what he says. It's kind of an interesting uh, passage. He says, for Moses says in the Bible, the Bible you read, honor your father and mother. And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. They're like, yeah, we know that Bible verse. We've memorized it. But you say, here's the contradiction. Here's where you're deceived. In the name of your tradition, you've elevated it over scripture, and you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, and you make the word of God of no effect through your tradition. You elevate tradition over scripture, which you have handed down, and he says, you've done this, you do this in so many ways. So many different ways you do, you do what I just said. Now, the example he gives is interesting. He says, uh, there is this tradition in that culture where biblically, say you had a piece of property and th there's, there's always a loophole, right? Got to find the loophole, right? Especially where there's a lot of red tape, right? And so there was a loophole where if you had a, a property and you said, this, is, this property is Corbin, it's, it it's dedicated to God. This belongs to God. Someone could come to you and say, hey, like, a family member, in this case, a father, a mother, and say, hey, I've fallen on hard times and I don't have anywhere to live. Like, do you have any property? You can go, I do, but I can't give it to you because it's Corbin. I've given it to God. It's like if someone comes to you and is like, hey, can I borrow your laptop? And you're like, ah, it's Corbin. I, you know, can I have some of your burrito bowl? Corbin, I've dedicated it to God. <laughs> I can't share my burrito bowl with you. Okay. Have you ever seen this done in other ways where you use religion in the name of not caring for those around you? Do you see this? You, you find loopholes. Like you misuse the scriptures. You so twist the scriptures. You're so deceived that in the name of the Bible in Jesus, you're as far as you could be from the heart of Jesus. And that's where they are. They're, they're deceived. Let me, let me define deception this way. To be deceived is to be blinded from the truth and led to live a lie. To be blinded from the truth and led to live a lie. That's where these Pharisees find themselves. This is what Jesus is confronting. With the Bible right in front of you, you have been blinded from the truth, even though it's right in front of your eyes. That's true deception. You don't see what's right before you, and instead you're led to, to live a lie. And we know that deception has a source. We know this, right? A source that doesn't sleep. 
a source whose goal is to steal from you, to kill you, to destroy your faith, and his tactic is deception. That's his name. He's the deceiver. That's what he does. From cover to cover, from Genesis chapter 3, Satan's deceiving. At the end of time, you see in Revelation, the deceiver is still identified that way. And it's what he's up to even today. Looking to deceive us, to get us to be blinded from what's true and led to live a lie. Um, This is something that God knew his people would be susceptible to. I love Deuteronomy 11.16 says, take heed to yourselves. Like, don't let yourself go and assume that you're okay. Stop for a minute and don't assume that everything you believe is true. Don't be your own Bible. Don't be your own Holy Spirit. Deception is real. So stop for a second. Take heed to yourself, lest your heart be led to, to live a lie. Lest your heart be, to be blinded from the truth and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Be careful. Be on guard. Like, this is one of the most, did you know this is one of the most echoed commands of the New Testament? Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And do you know who it's written to, by the way? Not pagan, secular people. Christians. Because it's really easy as a church to be like, oh, we're the enlightened ones. They're the deceived ones. And, and that is, man, if, if there's one main deception that the enemy s- seems to gain a lot of ground in, it's convincing Christians that they're not as susceptible to deception as they are. Convincing Christians that they know way too much of the Bible to ever be deceived. Can I tell you something? You don't know more than a Pharisee. You don't know, you, don't know a, you and I don't know quarter as much as a Pharisee. Yet they're as deceived as anyone. This is what Paul says. Paul talks about this. He goes, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, what does he do? He deceives himself. Susceptibility to deception. I think that's the first step in living in the light, in our hearts not being deceived, is recognizing that we tend to be and that there's a deceiver who's much craftier than you think he is. Maybe right now you can start to think about, like, what sort of things have I come to believe that aren't even true? But I've just assumed they are. Now, now how do we combat this? Isn't that the question? I don't want a deceived heart. Like, self-deception? Is there anything scarier than that? Like, to think you're on the right path, but you're not? Like, that's scary. To think you're living in truth when you're living a lie? Like, I don't want that. And so Paul talks about this. I love this. He tells Timothy. He says, in the last days... Men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. He's like, if you, here's what the end times are going to look like. Here's what 2022 is going to look like. Deception will be running rampant. In the public square and in the church. Every corner, deception. It's, it's in our pockets now, too, by the way. And pick your platform. Just because your platform agrees with your politics doesn't mean the enemy can't use it to deceive you. So my, my biggest concern is not, it's not that Christians are involved in making our country a place where we can love our neighbor through seeing God's kingdom come through his righteous rule. We want that in our country. We want to fight for right things. The danger is the way that we do that is we, we do that at the expense of truth. We just do it in the name of our, our cause. We do that in the name of our passion. And political passion is great as long as it's submitted to the scripture. As long as, as it, listen, as long as it recognizes I can be deceived, especially when I'm passionate especially when I'm passionate. Like if the enemy can get me to care enough about something, it's over, right? To where I lose my way. Now, now I'm, I'm, what I'm saying here is I'm not advocating for a carelessness. and that, That's, a, that's, a, that's a, a weak Christian that doesn't care for his nation. But a strong Christian is someone that doesn't just scream out against the deception of others, but they recognize their own susceptibility. And I love this. You must continue in the things which you have learned. And been assured of. Timothy, I know you know the Bible, but every time you face a new day, I want you to approach the Bible like you don't. (laughs) Approach the the scriptures with a hungry heart that says, God, speak to me what's true. I'm not bringing my assumptions. I'm bringing an open heart and open mind. Speak to me. Enlighten me. Show if there's any wicked way in me, please reveal it, God. If there's any deception, please shine your light of truth knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from, from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
Look at this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, what we believe, for reproof, how we correct, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, this is what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is a posture that says, okay, I'm coming with a new approach to life that says, Jesus, teach me your word so I can adjust my life to what's true. Not the other way around, which is let me adjust your word to what I like or what I prefer. Let me just cherry pick. Let me trail mix that thing and eat the M&Ms, you know? (laughs) Nothing uncomfortable. Nothing that requires too much chewing and work, you know? I just want the sweetness and... Jesus says this. I love this invitation. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness of deception, but have the light of life. Thank you, Jesus, for your light that leads us out of any darkness we can find ourselves in. Let's keep following Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hey, it's 1130. Let's close with one last point. Um, I'm not going to invite the worship team to, uh, to come up. We'll close in a worshipful prayer. Thanks, Ben, for taking a seat back down. I appreciate that. Um, The last thing that Jesus mentions is the danger of a defiling heart, okay? So we have a distant heart, which is filled with religious activity, but inwardly is distant spiritually. He he then confronts another heart condition that's concerning and critical, and it's a deceived heart that's, that's blind to the truth and led to believe a lie. And then lastly, Jesus confronts what's at the heart of the matter, pun intended. Jesus confronts a defiling heart. Jesus gets to the fact that at the end of the day, everything in your life is going to flow from the condition of your heart. And he says this, especially in response to what the Pharisees are saying. He calls the multitude to himself. He goes, hear me, everyone. Understand. There's nothing, like, don't listen to what these religious people are telling you about outside religion. There's nothing that enters a man from the outside that can defile him. Don't, don't make Christianity about those kinds of things. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So anybody, if you have ears, we're now obligated to listen, right? Thank you, Jesus. You got ears? Yeah, you got to listen. Okay. He says, it says this, when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. Like, what did you mean by that? I don't really understand. He said to them, why? <laughs> like, why don't you understand? No, he didn't say that. He goes, are you still without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Defilement doesn't come from without There is such thing as external behavior that's sinful. That's not what he's saying. I've actually had people, I remember high school kids, quoting this to me about his um, sexual sin with his girlfriend. He's like, well, it's it's not what's done on the outside which defiles a man. It's like, you just read that one verse, huh? Just that one. You like that one. That's your life verse, I guess, right? Pretty convenient for you, huh? All right. Do you see this? This is not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is the source of defilement is not the outside. The source of sin is somewhere deeper. It's what you do on the outside enters a man from the outside. He can't defile him. And Jesus gives a principle about uh, the intestines. He says, in the stomach and stuff, he goes, enters his heart, but his stomach, it enters his, you know, and is eliminated. If you've ever changed a diaper before, you know this is Jesus speaking the truth here. <laughs> thus, and thus purifying all foods. Jesus is like, no, don't, don't live in this sort of ceremonial, what can I eat, what can I No, no, no. That's not where defilement comes from. He says, what comes out of a man is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men. That's where defilement comes from. That's where humanity is sinful before God because of, listen, not just what we've done, but because of what's in our hearts. Jesus taught this over and over again. Evil thoughts, schemes, wickedness of thoughts towards enemies, adulteries, fornications, that's sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant, murders, which is rooted in hate, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, deceiving others, lewdness, an evil eye, which speaks of a lack of generosity. It's an evil eye. An evil eye says, you don't deserve my Corbin. You know? That's rooted in a heart issue. Blasphemy, pride, Where does pride begin in the heart? And foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile a man. That's where sin comes from. This is what Jesus is confronting. When Jesus, when God 
comes to earth in the, in, in, in the presence and in the person of Jesus Christ. And he speaks to humanity, and he, and he dives right into the problem of sin. What he says is, here's what's wrong with the world. Not just behaviors and social constructs and policies. All those things matter. But the source of sin and evil, listen, not just on the news, but in your life and my life as well, is the heart. It's the heart. That's where everything proceeds from. Now, it's, it's hard because when you read this list, you're like, well, if defilement comes from within, who can be clean? You ever thought that way? How could I ever be clean? This is what Psalm 24 says. Who could ascend into God's presence and into the hill of the Lord? Who could stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Anyone? Anyone ever evade all of these sins? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Well, if that's the condition, who's qualified? Well, none of us. And that's what the Bible teaches, that, we're all def- that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is what's so beautiful about the message Jesus brings here. Um, Jesus says this to his disciples in John 15, 3. This is so beautiful. He says, you're already clean because of the words that I've spoken to you. This is am- the contrast here is amazing. Every other religious leader gave you the five steps to be clean. How how do I clean my life up? That's what every religious leader did. Here are the ways that you, this is what religion sells. Here's how you can make yourself clean. Jesus comes and he says, I make you clean. I make you clean. It's not what you do to become clean. It's what I'll do on the cross. I'll become your uncleanness. I'll become your defilement. I'll become your sin. And you can become my righteousness. You can be cleansed. If anyone confesses his sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He makes us clean. He makes us clean through the blood of his cross, through the victory of his resurrection. And this becomes, listen, the template for our sanctification. This becomes now how we move forward as followers of Jesus. Those who have been made clean, who have hearts that have led us astray, but through a God who has made us clean, and now we start to pray things like this. God created us a clean heart. I want to move forward as a follower of yours with a clean heart. So God, would you grow me? Would you sanctify me from the inside out? Help me keep my heart. For from it is all the issues of life.